Well, we're glad you're here today, and uh, we're our current sermon series we've entitled, Are We There Yet? Getting from here to there. And for those of you who have not been a part of this with us, the series is based on the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Specifically, what we are considering is what we can learn from this biblical account that will help us as individuals, but also as a church, navigate the journey from where we currently are to where God is leading us, to where what God wants to do in and through us. Now, I believe that if we can embrace these necessities as we explore them over the few weeks that we'll be doing it, I believe that we'll successfully arrive at our destination having benefited significantly from the journey. So our first necessity was godly discontentment. Then last week, our second necessity was committed leadership. Today, we're going to be considering our third necessity, which is proper perspective. And uh, I just want to do a little exercise with you this morning. Don't panic. When I say exercise, I don't mean elevate your heart rate. That was close. Your heart rate just went up thinking about your heart rate going up. But I want to do this little exercise with you this morning. If you look at this picture of this cat, if you look at it for a while, it's kind of hard to discern. Is the cat going up the stairs or is the cat going down the stairs? Now, for some of you, it looks like the cat's going down. For some of you, the cat's going up. When you look at this picture, if you don't move your head, It circles. But just do this while you're looking at it. Do you see them them spinning? But they're not spinning. It's just the illusion that they're spinning. And you look at this picture, it looks like the center is bulged, correct? However, every single square in this picture is exactly the same size. 2015, the big debate is this dress gold and white, or is it black and blue? And that's a big debate, and in fact, there is a scientific reason, which I won't give to you because that's not why I get paid, but there is a scientific reason why you see certain things a certain way. And so the point is, well, there's a couple points here. It's, it's possible that there can be more than one perspective, that that you can, multiple people can look at the same thing, but see something different. And secondly, it's, it's possible that things are not always as they appear. It's possible that things are not always as they appear. And so the goal for this sermon today is to demonstrate that perspective is critically important, that we will either see vision through the eyes of God and His promises, or we will see through human eyes and circumstances. And so we want to stress the importance today of seeing vision, seeing a plan, seeing life from God's perspective, from God's perspective. And so today's necessity is found 
in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, and I want to read Numbers 13, and I realized a minute ago that I had it back earlier here, so let's go back to it. Numbers 13, 30 to 31 says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And so there are three parts of this story that I believe are necessary for us to review today. The first is reconnaissance. The journey from Egypt to the promised land was very difficult. It's been very challenging up to this point. But finally, after all of that hardship, they are standing on the literal edge of the promised land. They, they can see it with their eyes. They're, they're not in there yet, but they, are, they, they can see it. They can taste it. They're, they're almost there. They can hear it and smell it. And so it's time now to embrace God's promise. All of this was about this moment, and here they are. It's an exciting time. It's a new beginning. It's a time when their hopes and their dreams are about to be realized. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, it tells us that it was the people's idea to send some spies into the, into the land and that God said, I'm okay with that. Yes, let's, let's do that. And so, God advised them to choose one leader from each of the 12 tribes. Of course, they couldn't pick the elders because they were elderly. But young, strong leaders from each of the 12 tribes and send them together into the land. Their task is to enter undetected into the new land in order to gather information by observing the land and its people. Questions they have to answer are these. Are the people strong or are they weak? Are there a few of them or are there many? Are their towns small or are there large cities? Are they fortified or are they unwalled? Is the soil fertile or is it poor? Are there any trees? And bring back some samples to us if you find anything that would meet some of these criteria. And so the 12 men are chosen. They set out on their fact-finding mission, reconnaissance. Secondly, report. After 40 days of exploring this new land, the 12 spies return to the camp. Moses and Aaron stand at the front with the 12. It says that the entire Israelite community are gathered there to hear the report. There's an excitement in the air. They couldn't wait to hear all about the land that God had promised them. And the report started so well. And the spies confirmed. They said, yes, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. Now, not literally, right? You're not, you know, oh, the rivers are milk. or you know, It's, it's symbolic of abundance, of life, of, of provision. They brought back this enormous bushel of grapes and pomegranates, and figs, and they're all laid out on display. There's this verbal report, and there's this visual 
demonstration of the land of milk and honey. I mean, you can feel the excitement building in the story. Every step along the way, it just gets more and more exciting. In a single moment, with the use of a single word, the excitement comes to an abrupt stop and reality hits them. But, but, the people who live there are powerful. And he began, they began listing off all the nations of people. They said, there's Amalekites, and there's Hittites, and there's Jebusites, and Amorites, and Canaanites. Moreites. No gigabytes. List is long and frightening. The cities are large, and they're fortified. They're inaccessible. They're impenetrable. We can't do it. They are stronger than us. And then they get to exaggerating because a good story, a good storyteller knows the art of exaggeration. Not that I've ever gone there. But a good storyteller knows the art of exaggeration. And so they want to build this idea that we can't do it. And they said, oh, and by the way, there are Anakites. Now, Anakites are a race of very large men. And then to put the icing on the cake, and there are Nephilim. Oh, God, no, not Nephilim. Oh, yes. Oh, there are Nephilim. Now, Nephilim were believed to be half human and half angels. This race of giants. And so it says, oh, there are Nephilim. And guess what? They devour those who live there. In comparison to them, we looked like grasshoppers and to them. And, and when we looked at them, we felt like grasshoppers. But. But. There were two spies that brought a different report. Caleb and Joshua. And Caleb says, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will lead us into the land. He will give it to us. Don't be afraid. We will swallow them up. Their protection is already gone. Because the Lord is with us. And so the report of the ten spies was more of a challenge, more than just a challenge to to Caleb and Joshua's report. It challenged the sufficiency and and the promise of God to lead them into the land, to give them as a fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. So you have this dual report. And then finally, there's response. I know I used the word finally. Don't get your heart rate up again. (laughs) It really means nothing. Response. The words of the ten spies spread like a wildfire through the camp, while the words of Caleb and Joshua fell on deaf ears. The people are upset and frightened. Now, it's important to note 
that these are the same people who personally, personally witnessed the miraculous hand of God on them throughout the journey. They were there in Egypt when the plagues went through the nation. They were there on that day when daybreak came and the Red Sea parted and they went across the other side on dry land as God delivered them from the Egyptian army. They were there when the water was so bitter they couldn't drink it, but God miraculously made it drinkable. They were there every morning when they woke up and there was manna on the ground, bread from heaven, and they got up and they ate it every day. They were there every day. They were there when they got sick of manna. And they began to complain and God brought quail and meat for them to eat. They were there. They were there when there was no water to be found. And God miraculously caused water to flow from a rock. They were there. They were there when Aaron and Hur held the arms of Moses up to the point that they saw victory over their enemies. They were there. They were there every day. That God's presence was with them visibly in the sign of a cloud and at night in the, in the symbol of a fire. They were there. But no one spoke of God's grace to them time after time when they messed up. No one spoke of the miracles. The majority of them are wailing and screaming and they're angry. They focus their complaining on their leadership, on Moses and Aaron. And in complaining about their leadership, God said, you're not complaining about Moses and Aaron. You're complaining about me. You're a generation of complainers. And they wished they had died in Egypt. Oh, if we had only died in Egypt. Or if we just had died somewhere in the desert. But to get this close, to be able to see it, and then not be able to have it, is too much to bear. So they said, you know what? We need to choose a new leader that'll take us back to Egypt. Now among those who stood steadfast in the midst of all of this were Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua. And although they're outnumbered, they addressed the crowd and they spoke into the chaos. And they reminded the people, people, the land is exceedingly good. God will lead us into the land if we submit ourselves to Him. He will give it to us. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with us. And the people's response was, you know what? You're making a lot of sense, guys. No. We're going to kill you. We're going to stone you to death. We don't want to hear anything positive. Don't come to us with your positive thinking and your faith. Right now we are wallowing in our mourning a negativity. And we will kill you if you say anything good. And then God responded. I love this. It says, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the midst of the crises at the tent of meeting. Folks, this is the ultimate just wait till your father gets home. Right? <laughs> I mean, all of us lived our lives that way to your father. This is the ultimate. I mean, all of a sudden, they're bickering, they're back and forth, there's negative, there's positive, and then God comes down. And God spoke to Moses with a question and said, how long will these people treat me with contempt? 
How long? The word contempt means an utter disregard by their unbelief. God says, especially after all the miraculous signs I've given them. What do they need? Look what I've done. And God is angry. And he says, you know what? I'm going to strike them down with a plague. That's what I'm going to do. And Moses pleaded with God and said, God, the Egyptians are going to hear you. Hear about this. God, your reputation is at risk. And so God is having this conversation with Moses and it says that God switches and changes his response here and he says, okay, I'm going to forgive them. But there's going to be consequences for their actions. They're not going to be allowed to go into the land. In fact, all who are 20 years of age and older who complained are going to die in the wilderness. Well, when Moses brought that message back, they were suddenly repentant. Oh, Moses, we've sinned. You know what, Moses? We're going to go now. Come on, let's go. We got our stuff ready. We're going now. And Moses said, uh, uh, you, you can't go. You can't go. It, it's too late. Guys, the window is closed. It's, it, it's, it's too late. If you go now, you're actually disobeying the Lord. And you're not going to succeed. So, so don't do it because the Lord's not with you. The circumstances have changed now, guys. He's not with you. Well, some of them went anyway. And they were defeated. And following that, and this is such a sad commentary. Following that defeat, Moses led the people back away from the edge of the promise, back into the wilderness, waiting for all of them, 20 years and older, who had complained to die. I believe there are some valuable lessons regarding a proper perspective that we can glean from this story. So as we are on our journey from here to there, from where God is, we currently are to where God is leading us, there's some very valuable things I believe that we can hear. The truth is, in every step of both our personal and our journey as a church community, there will be a choice to be made. The choice will be to see the journey through the eyes and promises of God or to see the journey through your own eyes and your circumstances. Every step along the way, that choice will be before us. And so I want to consider three specific choices that I see in this story for us to consider today. The first choice is fear or faith. Fear or faith. In 1331, the 10 spies said, we can't do it. It's not possible. It's bigger than us. It's intimidating. In 1333, they said, we look like grasshoppers in comparison. In 1330, the two spies said, Caleb and Joshua said, we can certainly do it, we should do it, and God will lead us. In 1479, and he will give us the land, and he will swallow them up because the Lord is with us. 
Now, I want us to notice the difference in perspectives. The ten spies are focusing on the words, we. We. They're seeing the challenge from a human perspective. We can't do it. We will fail. We will be destroyed. We. They see the challenge from a human perspective. And they feel inadequate. And rightfully so, because from a human perspective, this is suicide. In human terms, it is impossible. But Joshua and Caleb, rather, their focus is the Lord, the Lord. Over and over, they say the words, the Lord. They're seeing the challenge in light of God's perspective. God's promise. It's not about their ability. It's not about the intimidation. In God's terms, this which is impossible is possible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. That's what they're saying. And so along the journey from where we are, to where God is leading us as individuals and as a church, there will be moments where we will have to choose between fear and faith. Between we can certainly do it and we can't do it. Between this is not possible and it is certainly possible. And what will allow us to choose faith over fear will be the fact that we know and we believe that God is with us. Choosing to see the challenges through the eyes of God, not the eyes of men. When you know that you know that you know that God is leading you. When you know that you know that you know that God is leading us. When that happens, faith will rise above fear. Now, when I reflect on the fact that God is calling His people to commit significantly everything, to sacrifice, give their all, without compromise, in the midst of a culture that promotes self and comfort and personal reward and a lack of commitment, I have moments when I wonder if it will ever be possible for us to become the people He wants us to be. When I reflect on a church culture that has become so inward-focused, so entertainment-focused, so relatable to the point of compromise where we are more more needs-focused than we are God-focused, I wonder, I wonder at the core of my being if it will ever be possible for us to go against the grain and survive, let alone excel in the day and age we live in. I wonder. But then I'm reminded, yes, a thousand times, yes, even if our approach is not popular, even if our approach is not attractive, if there is any hope For the church in our culture, in the day that we live in, it will be found in a group of people who are not willing to settle for anything less than what God calls us to, regardless of the cost, 
regardless of the popularity, regardless of the trends. You see, when facing a choice between faith and fear, regardless of how daunting the reality is, we must choose faith. We must choose faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's not leading us to failure. He's not leading us for the purpose of defeat. He's not leading us so we can be embarrassed. He's not leading us so we can go bankrupt. He's leading us so we can become the people of God who will make a positive impact on a broken world because we choose to have faith in Him in a time where fear is natural. Fear or faith. Critical or supportive. In chapter 14, we see a contrast of reaction to the leadership of Moses and Aaron after the reports of the spies have been heard. Now, you've got to imagine yourself in that moment. This is a large group of people. They're gathered in an open space. I mean, there's upwards to a million people here. And they're listening to 12 people bring a report. Now, you've got to realize, there's no sound systems. They're not listening to the podcasts on their iPhones. They're not sitting in their living rooms in front of their televisions getting the report. They are all gathered physically in this open air space with 12 people at the front bringing the report. Most of them are not even in hearing range. They're not even in hearing range. And so once those who are in hearing range hear what's being said, they don't only hear what's being said, they start reacting to it. And then they start to turn... (laughs) To the other members of the community, right? Because your wife's about three rows back. He's saying, right? I mean, this is terrible. This is terrible. They're not only passing on information. They're also passing on their emotions. They're sharing the news. They're sharing their emotions. They're sharing the fear that they're experiencing. And what's the result? Fear and negativity sweeps through the camp. And fear and loss are a partnership. Fear is fueled when loss becomes a reality. Some people say, you know, I'm afraid of change. No, you're not afraid of change. People don't fear change. They fear the losses that they perceive that will be associated with the change. And so upon hearing from the ten spies, the people began to fear their potential losses. We're going to die at the hands of our enemies. Our wives and our children are going to be taking this plunder. We've wasted our lives all these years going through the wilderness, taking a step of faith for something that's never going to happen. The fear of loss led to criticism. You see, human nature is such That we need someone or something to blame. I always say, that's why we get married. We need someone right there that we can blame for stuff. Don't go out and try and find a stranger. Spend your life with one. My blame bearer. Human nature is that we need someone or something to blame when things don't go as we are led to believe they're going to go. Well, it's somebody's fault. 
When something doesn't turn out like we hoped, it's somebody's fault. When I didn't get what I wanted, it's somebody's fault. When we're threatened by losses, it's got to be somebody's fault. Now Moses and Aaron are not responsible for what lies in the promised land. They didn't go and plant all those groups of people. They didn't build the walls around the cities. They didn't, they didn't do any of that. Nor are they responsible for the lack of faith of the people. The truth is, ultimately, the people are actually angry at God. He promised them a better life. He led them there. But there's a problem, you see. Moses and Aaron are God's representatives. And they're right there in the flesh, right in front of them. And so they bear the brunt of the criticism that flows from the people's fear and their sense of loss. So they blame Moses and Aaron. They say, I regret the day we ever stepped one foot in this journey. We should never have left Egypt. And you know what? This is what we need to do. We got a plan. We're going to pick a new leader. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pick a new leader who's going to take us back to Egypt. That's, that's the solution. Now, what's interesting is they didn't pick the first leader. I always find that interesting when churches think they selected their pastor. The vote does matter. But I didn't come here because you picked me. I came here because God picked me. They didn't pick the first leader. God did. And so in comparison, Joshua and Caleb, they stood with their leadership. They joined them in solidarity. They were outnumbered. Their lives were even threatened, but they supported their leaders without criticism. Interesting picture that's unfolding here. You see, change, a perceived loss in our lives and in our church provokes fear. It provokes fear. And fear becomes expressed often in the form of criticism. When we feel like we're losing control, when things are going different than we thought they should go or we want them to go, when there are losses that we are going to experience along the way, when circumstances seem intimidating, when we think someone needs to be blamed, we complain. Now, the problem is, complaining is not helpful. It's that, like that joke that people still use for the last nine million years, but no one ever lives by. No point in complaining. No one wants to listen anyway. That's true. There is no point in complaining because no one wants to listen, but we still keep doing it. And then we just say that little phrase. Complaining is not helpful. Complaining is hurtful. It hurts the one complaining because it takes them from seeing life through the eyes of God and His promises to seeing life through their own eyes, their own fears, their own desires, their own plans. It changes their perspective from God to themselves. It magnifies the reality of our own true, poor spiritual condition that lacks faith and trust and support. And it causes others to also lose confidence in the complainer because here's a shocker. No one likes 
a whiner. Nobody likes a negative person. How many of us have said, i got to stay away from that person. They are so negative, I just can't stand it. Right? Nobody likes a whiner. Nobody likes a negative person. But most of us don't have the courage to look someone in the eye and say, why don't you just stop whining? We just ignore you instead. It's easier. No confrontation involved. Whining and complaining hurts the complainer. Well, secondly, it hurts others. As their complaints make their way through the community, people get caught up in the emotion. They get caught up in the perspective of the person that's doing the complaining. See, complaining accomplishes our agenda. When we set out to complain to other people, we are not setting out to accomplish God's agenda. We are setting out to accomplish our own. God's agenda is never advanced through criticism. That's not the tool God uses to advance His his agenda. And thirdly, it hurts your leaders. Now, I've often said these words. You ready? I don't care what people think. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. How many times, who's ever heard me say that? Yeah. (laughs) You don't have enough hands to put up. How many times you've heard me say it? Now, I want you to know today that statement is sort of true. It's not completely true. It's only sort of true. Because when I make that statement, this is what I mean. I'm not going to allow the opinions and criticisms of others to deter me from what I believe God wants me to do. That's what I mean when I say that. That the opinions and criticisms of others will not keep me from doing what God wants me to do. Now, sometimes that's a painful principle to live by. But the truth is, I do care. I do care what people say. And I do care about what people think. Because criticism and complaining does hurt. It does. You can say you have thick skin. You can say you've been doing this long enough. But at the end of the day, complaining and criticism hurts. Your skin can't get thick enough. Your age can't get high enough that the criticism and complaining of others doesn't hurt if you admit it. You see, it's so hard to give your life to serving other people. Sometimes it's our family. Sometimes it's a leader. It's the church. That you walk with them through the most challenging seasons of their lives. Sometimes people go through such deep, dark valleys and you walk beside them and you make sacrifices for them only to be criticized and not given the benefit of the doubt. A few years ago, when our youngest was in music lessons for a very short window of time. One recital. That was it. It began and ended with one set of lessons with one recital. Recital day was set. We were so pumped. You know what it's like, right? Third child, you don't take pictures anymore. You don't do video anymore. There's no memory book for them anymore. They're just, they're just who has time for that, right? So you put this on the calendar. This is a big deal. Your kid's in a recital. You're going to go, and they're going to be terrible, but you're going to tell them they were great, right? Well, then someone in the congregation experienced a significant loss, like a significant loss. 
And they needed me on the exact afternoon that my daughter was going to do her one and only recital. Now, that wasn't really a dilemma because our family understands what I do. So as difficult as it might be, and they didn't sign up for it, they're usually pretty good with it. So I had a talk with her, and I said, Honey, this is what's happening. This family needs me. I can come to your recital, but if I come to your recital, I can't be there for that family. And she said, Dad, I want you to be there for that family. It's okay. Mom will tell you all about it. And Mom will. She'll tell me every detail. Mom ha- Mom's into details. I just want the Coles Notes version, but Mom writes the encyclopedia sets. It's just, just the way it is. So I made that sacrifice. Do you know that within a month that family left the church because they felt that we didn't care about them enough? Guess who's not going to be around my bed when I'm breathing my last? That family. But guess who is? My daughter. You see what I'm saying? What puzzles me, I'm just giving you an insight to leadership. What puzzles me is that you can spend months trying to save a family. And at the end of the day, they just walk away from you like you did nothing. And they blame you because you didn't fix them. You see what I'm saying? People in leadership, they care. What you long for in leadership is you want someone who will at once give you the benefit of the doubt. And say, I don't know what the circumstances were, but I know you and your heart, and it must have been the right thing if you did it. That'd be great. But oftentimes, that's not the way it is. Criticism hurts leaders. And it doesn't matter what level you're on. It does. And so when facing a decision that you can be critical or you can be supportive, for God's sake, be supportive. Be an encourager. Lie if you have to. Because criticism will never lead us into God's intention for us. Thirdly, I think I'm over the worst one. Safety or risk. In 14.4, in response to the fears of what was waiting in the promised land, the people decided... They wanted a new leader that would take them back to Egypt. Egypt, as bad as it was, slavery, beatings, bondage, was familiar to them. And familiarity brings a sense of safety to people. It's what we know. It's why people stay in abusive situations. There's a lot of reasons why they do. But one of them is as unsafe as they are, there's this weird safety in what you know versus what you don't know. The solution to our issues are often similar to the solution of the Israelites. Well, I know what we need to do. We need to go back. We need to go back to where we once were. And then we start making statements like, we used to. Anyone ever use those words? We used to? We used to have this program. Remember that? We used to have a lot of people. Remember that? Remember, we used to have like a really good pastor. Remember that? We used to have, right? It used to be warmer in the sanctuary. Remember that? 
We used to, we used to, we used to. Those are words we use. We elevate the past. Not only do we elevate it, sometimes we re- even re-envision it. We revision it as being better than it was. But ultimately, we believe that the best days are behind us. When all we talk about is we used to, then we believe that the best days are behind us. Our hearts are there. Our minds are there. Our focus is there. Why? Because clearly we must believe that the best days are behind us. But the truth is, the truth is, our future is never in our past. Our future is never in our past. As good as the past may have been, that may have been a great season, a wonderful season. Do you ever go out to a restaurant and it was a great meal, and then you think, oh, I just got to get back there, and you go back, it's not the same meal? This time you're disappointed? Or you stay in this hotel, and you go, oh, I just got to go back there again, and you go back the second time, and you go, yeah, it's not really like I remember it. Our future is never in our past as good as the past may have been. We learn from the past. Hopefully we do. We honor the past. That's really important. We're shaped by the past. There's no question. We have fond memories of the past. That's okay. But our future is never behind us. You can't go back every time your comfort level is challenged. You can't go back because there's no future back there. You got to move on. Your future is not back there. Now, in comparison, Joshua and Caleb, they're, lo- they're not looking at the past. They're looking to the future. The only thing they are bringing from the past to the future is their confidence in the faithfulness of God. They see the same realities that the other ten can see. They're not debating the truth that there's challenges ahead. They're not, they don't have their heads in the sand. They know it's challenging. But they are convinced to their core that God is leading them and that if God has been faithful in the past, He will be faithful in the future. They believe that. So in 1330, they say, let's do it. Let's do it. They're willing to take the risk. They're willing to take a step of faith, believing that God will overcome obstacles. Why? Because He's done it before, and it's His idea. It's a God idea. It's not a good idea. It's a God idea. And so because of it's, that it's God's idea, and because it's God's promises, how can we not do it? Folks, Jesus didn't die as cruelly as He did on a cross so we could live safe comfortable lives without challenges and risk. He just didn't. The disciples didn't follow Jesus because they thought, this is great. We follow the Messiah. Life's cushy. Great retirement. Good living conditions. You know, a horse account. The disciples didn't follow Jesus for safety. Most of them were either killed for their faith or died in captivity because of their faith. It was anything but safe. Jesus died so that we could embark on the greatest adventure of a lifetime. Facing the odds. Overcoming the obstacles. Doing the unthinkable. 
risking it all because He called us and He leads us and He fights for us and He gives us the victory. The Israelites chose safety over risk. And the result was they never saw the promised land. Nothing will kill a vision like safety. Safety will keep you from arriving at the destination that God has for you and for us as a church. The truth is, and we learned this from the Israelites, not everybody's going to make it. Not everyone's going to take the risk. Because the people you start with and not always the people you end up with. Some can't embrace the future because they choose safety over risk. Some can't embrace the future because they can't let go of the past. Some will never know the thrill of the future because they can't get into God's idea because they're so stuck in their own. Some will never know the thrill of taking a risk for God and seeing it happen because they prefer the safety of what they know. I love C.S. Lewis and his writing in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is my favorite part. Lucy's having a conversation with Mr. Beaver before she meets Aslan the lion. And she asks him this question. Is he safe? Is he safe? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. When facing a decision of safety or risk, risk everything if God is leading it. Risk everything. To quote someone who's been quoted far too many times but whose truth rings out, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot. And the choice is there. Safety or risk. 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 I'm going to invite the worship team back. If we're going to get from here to there, if we're going to get from where we are to where God is leading us, it's going to take a proper perspective. It's going to involve choosing to see the journey and the challenges and the future through the eyes and promises of God and not through the eyes and fears of man. Nothing great for God was ever accomplished by seeing it through the eyes and fears of man. It will involve choosing faith over fear, choosing support over criticism, choosing risk over safety. Father, this morning as we conclude this service, Lord, I thank you for every single person that's in this room this morning. I thank you that every one of them is a part of your plan. Every single one, regardless of where we are, what our attitudes are, where we are in our walk with you at this time, we are all a part of your plan. That you have dreams for us and plans for us. That you, the last thing you want for us is to settle 
when you have something so much more exciting and better and fulfilling for us. And so, Father, I just pray today that you would convince us by your Spirit to reach out in faith and not be governed by fear, to shift our focus from criticism to support and getting on board and trying to to see and believe that what you're saying is true, not deflecting, that you would give us the privilege and the courage to risk for you, not for the thrill of risk, not because we think it's a good idea, but risk because we are surrendering our need to be safe. We're surrendering our need to be in control. We're surrendering our need to make sure nothing goes wrong. We're going to surrender that to you and risk that what you are saying is true, that you have so much more for us than we can even begin to imagine or understand. And we say, Lord, I want it. I want it. I don't want to stay here. I want to go there. I don't want to stay where I am. I want to go where you're leading. God, would you help us today to make the decision at every step. You and your promise versus me and my circumstances. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.